Welcome to Whiskey Talk, Malts and Music, brought to you by the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, here in the vaults in Leith. My name is Rick Galloway, I'm a broadcaster, author, musician and music journalist, and the idea of this podcast is to bring together single cask, cask strength whiskies and music. I ask creative people to pair up four drams with four pieces of music, we discuss their selections and we go off on tangents into their lives and careers. I hope you enjoy. Slan Welcome to Malts and Music, Doug Johnson. Thank you very much, Vic. Good to see you, pal. Good to see you. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Yeah, um, esteemed crime writer, musician, all-round good egg, whiskey fan. <laughs> um, lots to talk about. We're pairing up music and whiskey as we always do on Malts and Music. Uh, here at the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society in the vaults in Leith, uh, you're a member of the society and you've been a member in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's a beautiful place. In fact, I was at this very table for my mum's 80th birthday not very long ago. Oh, wow. That was amazing. Cool. Um, so whiskey's a thing for you. I mean, I know we'll talk about your books and, and the connection to, to whiskey in them, but how did you first kind of discover whiskey? Uh, my dad. <clears throat> my dad was a whiskey drinker, still yeah. is. Um, but yeah, he was, that was kind of the only, I mean, when you're young, like drinking, I mean, I was kind of, I grew up in a drinking culture, um, and drinking all sorts of garbage, really, like cheap lager and cheap spirits and cheap wine. Mm-hmm. But he was drinking nice single malts, of which I was completely unaware, but just smelled them. And it, he, he liked particularly the sort of Isla stuff, really peaty stuff, and, I, and I, I just always loved them for some reason. And so when I was trying to be more grown up, uh, in the in pubs and that, I would order all of all of or something like that, and it just it just stuck. I just love them since then. And that's got to be what uh, 25, 30 years or something. You've been doing yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. some people are discovering whiskey now, especially the nicer <laughs> stuff. Sure. Uh, but some people go back. I mean, previous guests have said, yeah, yeah, I started drinking nice whiskey when I was kind of late teens, early twenties. Not always that common though. Yeah, it's not because there wasn't really a culture of it. It wasn't as wide, widely known about. I think mm-hmm. it was like a lot of you know, supermarket blends and bells and all that kind of stuff was kind of your go-to whiskey and cokes in the, yeah. in the pub or whatever, which is fine, but it's like, I mean, it's a totally different kettle of fish to have a proper single malt, and then it's another level up for the kind of stuff, the single cask stuff that you get here, which is just kind of mind-blowing sometimes. Yeah, so we've got four drams, four pieces of music, yeah. which you've paired up. Um, I can say in advance that we've got three space sides and a Taiwanese whiskey. I've not tried any of these <laughs> yet, and I'm most excited, I think, about the Taiwanese one. I hope I like it. Um, you have paired them all with tunes. Let's go for the first one, okay. which is uh, called Hoppy Madness. It's a 12... 12- Point four eight twelve four eight is the number. Uh, a second fill X IPA barrel. It's aged ten years. It's a space side. It's fifty nine point five percent. It's part of this spicy and sweet profile. And just a couple of the tasting notes before we get stuck in. A prickly, hoppy, floral, and spicy aroma awaited us. Elderflower cordial, lime juice, orange peel, raspberry ripple, and pistachio parfait. On the palate, juicy lemons and oranges, chewy caramel and toffee flavors balanced out the very zingy grapefruit bitterness. And it goes on, but that gives us quite a... <laughs> yeah. Like we're getting sweetness and zinginess, so... Yeah, definitely. Right, slange. Cheers. Good to see you. And you. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, I'm definitely getting the... Um, the zingy sort of citron, citrus. Yeah, that was the first thing I got. It was orange and lemon, like that sort of thing, citrusy mm. stuff. But then, it was also like, um, <clears throat> I don't think it mentioned in that, I get sort of like grass or hay or something. Yeah, yeah. Hope it's not setting off my hay fever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I think once, having just had a sip, the sweetness starts getting you actually, sometimes a whiskey you'll get the sweetness right at the front, I'm getting the zingy citrusiness at the front and then the sweetness towards the back of the palate. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> very quaffable. I mean, this, this is, this would be a good whiskey for someone that doesn't necessarily adore whiskey to maybe take a first step yeah, into. Yeah, it's a sort of entry level whiskey yeah. for maybe for someone who isn't an aficionado because it's, I mean, I think, it's Speyside, right? I think the Speyside ones are generally yeah. easier to drink than yeah. some of the other ones that are stronger tasting. That's de- this is definitely one of them, I think. But yeah. it's definitely, it's sort of summery. Yes. I think it feels like kind of, and also I was getting like a kind of buttery taste to it as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the caramel you mentioned, I think. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah. Um, I'd like to sit down with the panel that do the tasting notes and all the descriptions and actually listen to them invent a description while tasting a whiskey for the first time I think that would be absolutely fascinating because obviously this stuff leads you know whoever's tasting the whiskey quite often but um, if you're coming to them completely dry as it were without any description you know hopefully you'll come to some similar you know uh, conclusions yeah I think I always think the tasting notes are amazing I love the tasting notes me too yeah it's like it's a kind of a linguist dream Mm -hmm. it's like oh how are they even coming up with that well, and you're a writer as I well. Know, you must uh, sort of either be annoyed by or enjoy the no, verbosity. It's just, the thing is, it's the kind of language I could never put in my books. Right. Because it's too fancy, mm-hmm. but it's great in this context, I think. It works yeah. really well. But if I was to write like that in the books, like readers would just be chucking it away going, get to, the, get to the next bit of action, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. Um, although there are some beautiful descriptions in your books as well. How is it with, with a bit of water? Do you advise? Yeah, well, I, I like, always like a little bit of... Yeah. Water, mostly. Yeah, my mate Bruce always says, wake it, don't drown it. Yeah. A little splash. Yeah. Because I think it gets you get more of the nose, especially, and you can yeah. get more of the taste coming out from the water. The nose definitely changed immediately. Yeah. It's a slightly less less zingy nose and more sort of rounded, let me try. Yeah, yeah. Mm. 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 <laughs> this, this podcast this is, is going to take... It's for the podcast with lots of, <laughs> lots of empty silence while we're like this. And going, mm, delicious. Mm. Yes, um, great. So, uh, the first piece of music you've paired up with this particular whiskey is the Avalanches. Yes. Since I Left You. Yeah. I love this bit of music. Tell us why <laughs> you went for that. Well, because of that thing. It's because it's kind of citrusy and kind of grassy and hay. It just made me think of summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Avalanches, this record, the album, Since I Left You, is like... It's quintessential summer for me. Mm-hmm. Like for the last 20 years, it's been my summer record pretty much on and off. When I first heard this record, it's just like, well, you know, we both go back a long way about music. Yeah. Um, and I'm always interested in stuff that changes your opinion about stuff. And I heard this record and I'd never heard anything like it before in my life. I don't think anything had ever come out like it before. Um, because it's entirely made up of something insane like three and a half thousand samples. That's that's what I've read somewhere. <laughs> three and a half. So there's there's absolutely no live instrumentation on no. it. No, it's the only other record I know that's completely like that is introducing by DJ yeah. Shadow. I'm sure there there will the be most, some other ones. ones but, yeah, but yeah. The, but the feel of this record it feels like a sort of lost mixtape from the 1960s or something like that. It's amazing because it's these two guys. Well, there was more at the time. There's two of them now basically from Melbourne, going through junk shops, like, you know, picking up Hawaiian guitar records and stuff, just out of, like, charity shops, and just thousands and thousands of, like, records and samples and just putting it together. And somehow, I mean, it could have been terrible, I guess, but there's some sort of brilliant artistic sensibility going on this where they make a record that just sounds like, because it it never stops, it's continuous, like, 18, 20 songs that just run, 
fold into each other. And it just sounds like summer, it's beautiful. And so chilled out, it's not like a hip hop record. It's like a, not quite a dance record. It's not like driving beats, but it's just a kind of, it just makes you feel like you're on holiday. It's a sunshine pop record. Yeah. Uh, and anyone that maybe is slightly cynical about music technology and uh, it's not real music unless there's a guitar in it or unless there's, you know, it's real yeah. musicians playing real instruments. This is a great record to, to throw those you know, assumptions out yeah. the window because it is incredibly musical. It's unbelievable. I mean, I, I mean, they were a band first. They played instruments, I think. I'm, reading, I'm listening to an oral history of the album at the moment because mm. I went back to like, um, uh, listening to this again. And they were, a, they were a kind of like Beastie Boys, but they played their instruments and they were kind of doing chaotic live shows. And then this album came out of nowhere, spent 18 months just in a studio with thousands of records and came up with this. And it is absolutely about having an artistic sensibility. These songs were written by them and curated by them in every sense of the word. They've made this singular piece of, of dance art, if you like. Yeah. And it's just, I think it's awesome. I don't think it's ever, and it was this kind of a snapshot in time. They didn't release another record for like 16 years. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, they've got two album, more albums now, which are both amazing, but yes. are not the same as this, because they were older and kind of, and the technology is, they were kind of hamstrung, I think, by the technology at the time. So they could only do so much and I think they didn't pay a lot of the legal fees for that. Well, I was just about to say that. I think, I think copyright law is a lot different now. I yeah. think they, they got in at the tail end of the, 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 the joys of sampling, yeah. uh, when you could kind of nick bits of other people's records and blend them all together, and no one really knew what was going on. Yeah, and they before the of, lawyers got on hold yeah. of them. Yeah, I think, I, I think if you sample a famous record now, you, you're paying yeah. large sums of money for it. I mean, there's only about one or two famous samples that you'll recognise on this whole record. There's a Madonna one, and there's a Cool in the Gang one, I think, mm. and that's about it. But the rest of it is just random crazy stuff they found, which is it just it boggles my mind. I can't think how you would go about that, how creating that sort of thing. It just, which I think, is endlessly impressive. Yeah, I, I totally agree, and I loved I loved it when it came out as well. Um, I was on the radio by that point as well. It was two thousand and one, yeah. and yeah, I can remember playing this particular track, which is the the title track, but also one of the singles. But it's it's as you say, dip into it, really enjoy it. And as you were saying before, it's a summery, zesty whiskey. This, yeah, uh, it does. I could, I could. I've never been to Australia, but I could imagine myself sitting on a beach in Australia with this dram, listening to that record. Yeah. Do they make whiskey in Australia? I'm sure they do. Uh, they probably do. If not, we'll bring a bottle with us. <laughs> um, tell us a bit about your love of music. When, what? Did, how did you first get into music? Are you from a musical family? No, I'm not from a musical family. I, um, I mean. I was a musician, I was a drummer from, not a musician, a drummer. Hey! Hey! Uh, from the very, like the very early age, like five or six or something like that, I, my mum and dad, I was just, I used to drum on the sofa with knitting needles. Right. In, in time to stuff on top of the pops. And I think my parents bought me a drum just to get me to shut up and go. Just a snare to yeah, begin with. Yeah, a snare and a cymbal, yeah, and that was it to begin with. Uh, and I just loved it, I just I absolutely loved it. I loved all music. I was really, I was a real musical omnivore right from the start. Like, my first love was, like, you know, um, Adam and the Ants and Madness and stuff like that, you know, the pop music that was at the well, time. Well, we're, we're of a similar age, and same, same for me. Yeah, 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 but I also had an older brother and sister, and my brother was listening to, like, you know, Motorhead and the Sex Pistols and Rush and The Jam, so yeah. this is all amazing, and my sister was listening to ABBA and, like, all sorts of other, and, and pop stuff, and I was just like, this is all amazing. Yeah. I'm just soaking it all up, and I've kind of always been that way. I've kind of gone down different routes, so I drummed in bands at school, and then at university, around about when we met, actually, yeah. on three band bills in the, in the I don't know, the Cas Rock. The Cas Rock subway, Cafe or the ven like venue and the subway. Yeah, yeah all these kind of places where we used to be in bands together. Um, 
And uh, I just I always loved it. It's such a such a good vibe. Just creating something, just making something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, writing your own songs and getting up there to fifty folk, your mates, and just having a party. Yeah. And what about if you're going to buy as a music fan? You're obviously still listening to music. A lot of people my age, they kind of they tail off maybe in their early thirties, and then you just go, ah, music's not as good as it used yeah. to be. Uh, you're always going to love the stuff that you. You loved as a teenager in your twenties and so on, but you seem to you keep up with you know new music and new releases and what do you prefer? Do you do the streaming thing or are you a vinyl nerd? Or? I, I'm I'm a streamer. I'm not. I mean, I would love to say that I'm out there searching through record shelves and getting vinyl, but I'm not. I think streaming's actually great um, because I think when I was a music journalist for about twenty years. Um, uh, and, and that kind of got me in the mood for kind of keeping up to date with stuff. But it's a weird thing for a little while after I kind of gave that up uh, when the books, you know, the fiction writing started to take off, I kind of stopped doing that and it was such a relief not to have to keep up. Yeah. But I was, I was, I, I kinda, so I didn't really listen to anything new for a few years, but then I came back to it. And now I think because of streaming stuff that my tastes are more eclectic, much more eclectic than they were, I think, back in the day because I was kind of an indie kid. Yeah, and that was my main turf for listening to indie rock and stuff like that with other bits and bobs but now I think I mean I listen to a lot of ambient electronica as well as hip hop as well as some even slightly jazzy stuff and um, you know lots of rock and just, I, I kind of right across the board yeah. so I think I don't know I, I think I'm hopefully I'm more open minded about music than I was uh, Ian Rankin famously write, likes to write to music, yeah. and he, he, but he tends to have sort of ambient stuff, whether it be Mogwai or Boards of Canada or, or something Eno or something like yeah. that, just kind of throbbing away in the background as he <laughs> kind of imagines stuff. Is Do you do something similar? Yeah, very similar. There's a handful of sort of neoclassical composers that I listen to, like Johan Johansson, mm-hmm. uh, basically anything by him, um, uh, Max Richter as well, I'll get that on. Um, there's a guy, Alex Summers, who has done albums with, uh, with uh, John C. from Sigur Ross. Okay, right. Um, who's done loads of soundtrack albums as well, uh, which is a similar kind of thing. That it's always, it's nothing too nice. Like, you don't want it to be, you want it to be slightly dis- slightly disturbing. Yeah, It kind of puts right. you off a little bit or gives you, like, for example, the soundtrack to one of my favourite movies, Arrival. I love mm-hmm. listening to that because it's quite odd. Johan Johansson did that. Um, there's like little weird sort of vocal things that sort of jump out at you because it's about aliens and weird stuff yeah but, and I've so seen it yeah. I, I don't want to be too I think something that makes you feel like a little bit I, I don't know if it makes me create anything more edgy but it makes me feel like I'm not set, I'm not set in my groove that I'm just going to write the same old stuff okay yeah yeah it sort of jolts you out of your comfort a bit, zone yeah. a little bit right that's interesting uh, and how about you know you were you grew up in our growth mm-hmm. how would I mean How's growing up there? I mean, I'm from the East Coast as well, from down a bit, from Fife, but uh, was it a good place to grow up? I can imagine sort of a lot of wandering far and wide and being fairly <laughs> free to sort of let your imagination run wild. Yeah, it's a, it was a lovely place growing up, actually. Um, looking back on it, it was sort of, it's weird, it's sort of incredibly parochial in one sense. Like, for me, the big city was Dundee. Right. Like, you know, I was like, oh, we're going to go to Dundee, woohoo! Yeah. Uh, that was a big day out. You know, and I didn't even really have a concept of like Edinburgh and Glasgow or bigger cities or, God forbid, London. You know, mm-hmm. that was a weekend on a hot once, one one holiday in my teens or something like that. So it was kind of just it was fine. I lived across the road from like the Kepty Pond, and uh, which I used to fall in regularly in the right. winter uh, when it iced over, and like just yeah, hanging out at the beaches and hanging about in the parks, and it was like you know it's actually fine. Um, and did you have pals that were kind of in, interested in music and that kind of stuff as well? Uh, 
A bit, not as much. I mean, I wasn't in. I mean, I was in a couple of bands at school, but they weren't really as much into it. I, I kind of just loved everything. I, just, I would listen to anything. Yeah. And I just spend loads of time on my own in record shops. Makes me sound like a sad loser all the time. <laughs> but uh, but just me like, too. Yeah, but just looking at the record sleeves because I couldn't afford to buy them sometimes and stuff like that. Uh, in the in the case of our both, there wasn't a record shop, so it was either Alina May or John Menzies. That's where you got your. Uh, mm-hmm. That's where you got your records. Um, so the, my mates, even the ones that I was in a band with, weren't that much into it, I don't think. So it was only when I got to university that I kind of found folk who were really like mad about music the same as I was. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm nearing the end of this dram. Yeah, um, Should we move on to dram number two? Sure. Uh, mm, that was absolutely delicious. Hoppy madness. Oh, yeah. I wonder why it's called hoppy madness. Maybe because makes you want to hop around <laughs> on a summer's day. It didn't have a hoppy, as in hops, flavour no, to it. No, I'm not. I, one of my bugbears about modern beer drinking is how everything's so incredibly hoppy. It's like, you know, everything's mm-hmm. pale ale, so it has to be triple hopped. I'm like, maybe you don't all... Yeah, single to. hops, fine. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe no hops, you know? Yeah, I yeah. don't know. Anyway, so that wasn't hoppy tasting, I don't think. Not at yeah. all. No, I think I think the title maybe is a misnomer, but the, the it's certainly those tasting notes that I read out and just, you know, going into that whiskey there... Definitely on the on the right track and a great tune to start us off. Cheers. Um, yeah, the Avalanches. Since I left you, check out that album and of course that song. Moving on to dram number two, which is the magic is so strong, <laughs> and another excellent title. Um, it's a uh, cask wise second fill ex bourbon. It's aged twenty six years, Thanks. which immediately makes you think this is going to be good. Um, <laughs> It's a space side. It's fifty three point nine percent, so you know six percent uh, lighter than the last one, and it's part of the sweet, fruity, and mellow uh, flavor profile. I'll read a few of the tasting notes. Uh, the magic is so strong. Miraculously, we were transported to the Caribbean, to be precise, to the island of Antigua, uh, and there to Nelson's dockyard in the marina called English Harbour, with the non-existing one o'clock gun being fired. Imagination is a wonderful thing. We enjoyed a scoop of blood orange and honey sorbet, as well as rum and raisin ice cream on a chocolate waffle cone. (laughs) There you go. A a picture drawn in our minds and a couple of little flavoury, you know, uh, profile notes there as well. So, what did you think of this? I, I loved it. One of the things I noticed is there's not a lot on the nose. Yeah. It's like, it's quite unusual that you'd expect if it's, tw- what did you say, 26 years? Yeah, you'd think it'd be very... Uh, you, get, well, you get more... The closer the- I get in, <laughs> on, I'm sticking my nose right into the... To the Stick the right into the microphone, yeah. Yeah. It's quite a delicate nose, you're quite... Yeah. You're, you know. But it is, if you have a taste, it's definitely... Yeah, try a bit more water first. See, that's quite creamy, I think. Mm. Like a honey, vanilla, something like that, maybe. The rum and raisin ice cream is coming out. Mm -hmm. It's smooth. It's kind of a a very smooth kind of taste, isn't it? It is quite smooth, yeah. There's a little harshness towards the back of the mouth. Like, I think the alcohol kicks in a little bit. Um, But, you know, that's very nice. It's quite different from dram number one. Mm. Actually, in a weird way, I would say the first one was spicy and sweet profile, but I think it was maybe a little bit more fruity and mellow. Yeah. Whereas this one tastes a little bit spicier to me. Well, I think this, you could say this is fruity, but it's not like citrusy. It's more like kind of ripe fruit, like mangoes or something like that, or melon. Well, and they they made that Caribbean reference as well. So, And you paired this one up with... 
Little Sims. With Little Sims, uh, yeah, point and kill. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not a huge hip hop fan. I, mm-hmm. I love you know bits of it here and there, but it's not really where I come from originally. But I first came across Little Sims um, <clears throat> maybe a year or two ago on like one of these NPR tiny desks. She did a tiny desk thing. Yep. These gigs, kind of acoustic-y. You know, yeah, like a sort of live session yeah. in a small room. Strip back, yeah. It wasn't in it because it was during lockdown, so it was just their own studio or whatever they did mm-hmm. in. And I was just blown away. There was like about 10 of them. And it was like, it was one of those, because you know, sometimes hip-hop artists come out with just the backing track and just do their thing. Fine, great, that works. But this was like a full band. And you know when they get like the best session soul guys in, Mm-hmm. And like this, the band were absolutely incredible, and three backing singers, and they did a few songs, and then they played this, and um, it's got a sort of lead vocal by a Nigerian guy called Abong Jayar. Uh, yeah, uh, Abong Jayar. Abong Jayar, yeah. yeah, I think I've hoped I'm saying that right. Who came on and sang it, and he's just got this incredible like falsetto voice, yes, um, which is like it totally blows you away, and it worked really well with her voice. And then not long after that, I sort of started listening to the album, which is sometimes I might be introvert, it's yes, called, yeah, which is like. Crazy good. It's probably my favourite album last year. I would um, I would agree. It's an excellent record. It's sort of like orchestral. It's like a you know concept album. Mm-hmm. It's like orchestral at times, but there's some really hard driven like dance stuff in it, and also some really poignant things and loads of strings and kind of orchestration and some amazing vocals and Little Sims you know doing her stuff over everything. It's incredible. And Little Sims is London based, but yeah. of Caribbean descent. So Nigerian, ha- I think. Is it Nigerian descent? So, yeah. But she has that sort of dancehall patois that yeah. comes into her rhymes as well. And in this song especially, I, yeah. I don't know. And then when I watched the video, have you seen the video for this? No, I haven't. No. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. It's just her and this guy and the singer like riding about on a motorbike in Nigeria mm-hmm. with a machete. Oh right, okay. And it's quite full on. Uh, and at the end they get arrested by the police uh, but it's like it's fairly uncompromising right like okay. a lot of her stuff is yeah but the thing is it's very I mean um, she's she's on a mission she's got her own kind of t- take on London life and yeah. life as a young black woman in the UK and the, the trials and tribulations she goes through but it's also full of mo- melodies and ideas and hooks and yeah really joyous and this song because like because I kind of thought this was kind of tropical this whiskey yeah. that's what kind of made me think of this song because it feels like because it's basically an incessant like kind of beat going through it mm-hmm. just it's one riff all the way through the song that they just uh, sing over and it just kind of it feels like a sweaty club in you know Lagos or something like that right it feels yeah. great yeah um I've never actually been to Lagos. Well, either, no, me but, neither. Uh, if, but, if, yeah. if Nigerian Airlines Some, want to... Uh, yeah, <laughs> want, want to, to sponsor us to go there to watch music. <laughs> uh, no, um, it's a, a place rich in music culture as well. Um, yeah, I can, see, I can see how you might pair Little Sims up with, with this whiskey as well. Um, she's, she's a stunning artist. She won a Brit Award, yeah. recently Best Newcomer. She's been Mercury nominated. Her previous album, Grey Area, I love that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think she's slowly but surely getting the kudos she deserves. And again, people, you might not know that much or like hip-hop or dance all that much. I think this is a great entry uh, record because it's full of different textures and flavours as well. You know, it's quite listenable. There's, there's almost, was that, that track, Woman, on there? Yeah, it's yeah. it's string-laden, soul, yeah, kind of soul song. Yeah, and there's, there's, but what, what, what makes me work is it's such a complete work like and it, much like the avalanches, it kind of feels like a contained album because it's a concept. But also makes me wonder what the hell she's going to do next. Mm-hmm. But then you know she's so incredibly talented mm-hmm. that I'm sure she'll come up with something. But it just feels like a mass. You know, this is a breakthrough record for her, I guess. 
Yeah, since like. since I might uh, sometimes I might be introvert. It's S I M B A, which is uh, a sort of an a- acronym for her name, Simba. Yeah. I think so, or her nickname. I think that's her, yeah. her nickname. Um, yeah, I'm going to add a bit of water to this. Uh, what about the first few gigs you went to? That uh, kind of thing. Gigs I went to, right? So I was kind of in a I was in a rock, a metally kind of thing, and as a teenager. The first gig I ever went to was Marillion mm-hmm. at the Glasgow Apollo, sadly no longer with us. Right. Uh, I, I bunked off double French uh, at school and got the bus through to Glasgow. Uh, I went to see Marillion because by that time my sister was at university in Glasgow, so I stayed with her. Okay, cool. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and then I was just kind of going to gigs, kind of on my own, cause, like from school. I went to see Dio, was the second gig I went to. So I remember doing a, like, I was in a <laughs> band at school that was the six-year band, and I was in the fifth year, so it was, like, a real honour to be asked to play. <clears throat> and then they played loads of music, which I didn't particularly like, but we did Rainbow in the Dark by Dio. <laughs> like a rainbow in the dark! Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, um, impressive gigs. I mean, friends of mine are huge Marillion fans as well. Like, I've got friends in the Marillion fan club. Right, okay. And so he goes to, when they do these yeah. events in Butlins or whatever, and, and to see them at that, <laughs> that point, I'm not sure he sort of was aware of them at that point. Glasgow Apollo, that must have been pretty impressive. Yeah, well, that would have been maybe around about the second album. For, I mean, I had bought the script for A Jester's Tear when it came out. Right. For guys, it was the second album. But I loved all that stuff because, I mean, me and you have talked about this before. Um, you know, I... Kind of got a lifelong love of prog, mm-hmm. which kind of doesn't. It's, it's never the most. It's not, you don't say that in polite company sometimes. Oh but, no, critics <clears> hate it. Still. But but, it's, I mean, but I always loved it. I partly as a drummer, like because it's so like complicated. I used to listen to like you know Genesis records and stuff like that. And think, I'm trying to work out what the hell they're doing. Rush was a huge thing for me. Mm-hmm. You know, at one point I could you know drum every Rush song. You know, as a teenage boy, which you know was incredibly impressive to no one except me. Yeah. Uh, and didn't didn't get me a girlfriend, but I was like, well, I was well yeah. chuffed for myself. <laughs> um, and but I just loved all that stuff. You know, I'm mucking about in nine eight time and five four, and here we go. Yeah. Uh, and like you know, really the same. And I'm looking back at it, some of it is kind of pretentious nonsense. Yeah, I mean, I came I came to prog later on. I was very tribal. Prog was an absolute no no for me, and <laughs> in, in my all the way through my teens, it was only really as my mind started opening. F- you know, beyond that in my 20s that I started embracing math rock, you know, post-rock, yeah, yeah. prog rock, whatever, things in 9-8 and so on and, uh, and just realise, and jazz, I'm like, I'm a huge jazz fan now but you, you, sometimes you get there as a teenager, sometimes you find it later in life, yeah. sometimes you never find it at all. Yeah. Um, but it seems weird because like people sort of say, well, you, I mean, it's, I've never understood, I mean, I was also kind of tribal there was a tribalism. I mean, there genuinely was like a kind of mods and rockers thing when I grew up in our growth, where like a bunch of folk were into ACDC and a bother bunch of folk were into the jam. And I was like, it's the same thing. Mm. It's like, it's, ro- it's rock music. What are mm. you not getting? I never under- and they hated each other. And I was like, what? I don't understand that at all. I couldn't, I couldn't get my head around that. And it's, it's totally, it's fine to like, also, you know, to love Rush, but also Ace of Spades. Yes. Like Motorhead. And also the Avalanches and also something else. I mean, of course, it's all just, I, I remember saying, and people hated the kind of music. I remember Lauren Laverne said something once. It's like, you know, if somebody else is eating a meal that you don't like, you don't come over and berate them for it. <laughs> yeah. why, why are you eating that for? It's garbage. It's yeah. like, it's their taste. It's what they want to eat. Although, unfortunately, I think people do <laughs> do things like that on the internet anyway. <laughs> yeah. How dare you eat that? You know, you know. Oh, God bless social media. Yeah, that's... <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, no, no, I, I feel exactly the same when it comes to music now. I mean, I, I still like good criticism and I like people sure. defending what, what they like and why they like it. And I also like people, you know, being critical in a negative way. If they, if they really dislike something and are eloquent about it, then that's always quite interesting yeah. as well. And funny, often. Well, what I used to find as a music journalist was that I would quite often listen to a record and think, and then I would interview the artist and it would immediately make me... Um, respect what they'd done more mm -hmm. like you know irrespective of who they were really because actually they had put time and effort and all that stuff in it and I, when I first started as a journalist I was I, I could be quite snippy and dismissive about stuff um, I think it just goes with being younger and kind of just wanting to make your mark and stuff but I certainly wouldn't be like that now and it's I, I guess I was the same with books I used to sometimes you know I used to get annoyed if someone liked a book it's like well that doesn't matter it's, that's their yeah. choice now I think well Whoever it is, whatever the book is, they spent X number of months or years making that thing and somebody saw fit to publish it, you know, just leave it alone. It's somebody else's thing. Yeah, well, get into books and stuff in a second. Uh, you've mentioned journalism a couple of times. You've got a diploma in journalism and you, and for many years you were an active, you know, journalist making your you know, living out of yeah. it. But the one thing we haven't really touched on, which I always think is quite fascinating, is that you've got a degree in physics and a PhD in nuclear physics. Yes, I do. Um, I mean, when you've gone through all that training and that's intense stuff, I mean, I mean, when someone says, oh, it's not brain surgery or it's not uh, nuclear physics, <laughs> actually, you could go, well, I understand nuclear physics as it happens. Um, wh why do all that training and go into that world and then sort of eventually reject it? Oh, I mean, we've got a time constraint, haven't we? I've got, I we a little time constraint. <laughs> I can't talk for too long about it. Um, well, I mean, I loved physics as a kid. You know, I loved uh, maths and physics especially because it was kind of the idea of the big answers, how the universe works, that sort of stuff, uh, and space and everything else. And, and I kind of did my degree and I really enjoyed that. My PhD, I was part of an ex a bigger group of people doing like experiments um, for nuclear physics. So it was kind of a small part of a bigger team. Most of my day job was just number crunching and like mm -hmm. data processing and stuff like that. Did you not end up designing missile guidance systems and radar and things like that, or being part kind, of a team? Kind of, yeah. I worked for four years as a systems engineer for uh, Marconi, as was then, who I was mostly, ra I was basically, I used to do mathematical simulations of like radar systems and sometimes missile guidance systems, yeah. But I hated that job. That was the, I basically, that was, my, that was the graduate office job I got after my PhD, um, and I just hated it. And yeah. at the same time, I was still in bands. And uh, I was running a little fanzine that was chucking, we were putting out in pubs and interviewing bands and stuff like that. And I started to get things um, published in like, you know, mainstream press, like gig reviews and things like that. Um, and I just thought, you know, I'll never make a, you know, I need more time to make a go of this. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah. So I quit my high-paid graduate office job and became a freelance music writer. And, and let's be honest, <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I'm still a music journalist and, you know, broadcaster and all the rest of it. It's tough earning a living doing it so to go from nuclear physics once or, or you know and, and Marconi yeah. and, and well paid and potentially a job that could develop into something very well paid to like going and doing gigs on a Tuesday night you know yeah. reviewing gigs at the art school or whatever but it was it was honestly one of the best decisions I've ever made honestly it was like it just it meant that I was doing something I enjoyed for a living mm -hmm. uh, and also it freed up because I mean I was I was writing fiction then occasional stories but you know coming in from a day of work you know it just saps your energy and I wasn't really finding the time to do it and even though I was much busier um, you know basically hustling for work as a freelance writer I was writing for a living you know I was learning my craft and I was like energised by it you know I was going out to gigs loads I was writing reviews I was interviewing bands start to pick up other things like restaurant reviews book reviews films 
general cultural stuff. Uh, and it was great, I was loving it, and I started to take my own fiction writing seriously. So I don't think, I honestly don't think any of that would have happened if I'd stayed at the, the office job. Yeah, well that's very honest and, and as you say, transformative. Uh, how are you getting on with the dram? Yeah, almost done, I think. I mean, me too. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you're drinking them at the same pace as me. It doesn't well, always happen. I wasn't gonna, but it turns out... They're quite, so delicious, I know. I quite like whiskey. Um, I, I've added some water to this and it has completely opened it out. And although yeah. the alcohol content of this one is far less than the Hoppy Madness, um, I think it's it's actually a little bit, feels more alcoholy to me. And maybe yeah. that's the, the, the rum and raisiny thing that, that keeps coming back to me. But I think with a spot of water, it just rounds it off a little bit. It's nice. Mm. <laughs> Cheers, Doug. Um, Cheers. Um, very pleasant indeed. Uh, let's move on to dram number three and tune number three. Mm. A little palate cleanser there. Right, we've moved on to Terra Firma, which could well be a prog rock song title. I would imagine it probably is. Um, it's a first built ex Oloroso hogshead cask, aged 14 years. Uh, the, alco uh, the alcohol content is 60.3%, and it's a space side again. And a few of the tasting notes here a spicy and leathery profile at first nosing, hot cross buns, cured game meats, aged Pinot Noir, and sauteed forest mushrooms. We also had a sense of leaf mulch, petrichor, and hoisin sauce. Water brought further meaty vibes such as beef jerky, jerky rib glaze, hessian, putty, and jasmine tea. <laughs> There's all sorts. I mean, lots of those flavour notes. If I was reading them, if I was in the, the vaults here at the uh, Scotch Malt Whiskey Society and I was like, ooh, not had terra firma before, let's, let, those tasting notes would make me go, drama that, please, immediately. Yeah. Um, th that, this sounds like the sort of thing I'm going to like. Yeah. What did you think of it? <clears throat> yeah, it's got more personality. It's got, it's got stronger flavours, definitely, than the... The, the nose one. is definitely much more character. Yeah, there's characterful. a lot of stuff going on there. I definitely got, I agree, I definitely got, like, like meat of some kind. You're right. <laughs> I mean, you read those tasting notes, if you're a vegetarian, you might be like, oh, I'm not having that, you know, or I don't know what, that, what those things taste I think like. there was something like, I think I could smell... This makes me sound really pretentious, like tarmac or something? Or yeah, like no, no, no. I, I mean, I, it says putty, and, and I'm getting okay. a bit of that on the nose. I'm not getting the um, the meatiness on the nose anyway, but I'm getting Pinot Noir a little bit and, and the putty kind of... Yeah. Right, nose is complex and interesting. And let's, <laughs> let's try the taste. Oh, wow. It's really nice, isn't it? It's really nice, but it's also by far the most flavoursome, to yeah. me anyway. Um, I mean, as if it needs explaining, this is also subjective. The idea of tasting something and having a definitive, you know, you know, this is exactly what it tastes like is yeah. absurd. And also the idea of pairing up with a bit of music is, is mad as well. It's like, you may pair it up with the next tune, someone else <laughs> may pair it up with something yeah, completely different. What have you gone for this time? Spoon. Well, yes, Spoon, and uh, a very recent song of theirs, Hell. It's not, yeah. their, it's not their song, it's a cover version. Oh, is it? Right, yeah. okay. Yes, so um, Spoon are a band from Austin, Texas, mm -hmm. which, which you obviously know, Britt Daniels, the um, singer. Uh, and I really, I kind of first came across them years and years ago with their album Girls Can Tell, mm -hmm. which I thought was an absolutely amazing record because it just didn't sound like a guitar band. It just sounded like, it reminded me of Afghan Wigs, who I was a huge fan of back in the day. Mm -hmm. And that there was something soulful about what they were doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was lots of space in the music. 
um, and there was lo- kind of really inventive and weird things they were doing. Um, and I was kind of kept in touch with them on and off over the years. And then, but they always they always bring out something like the last two three records have been like really surprising, which I think is great because they're on like about album ten now or something like that. Yeah, you know? I think this is album ten. Okay, and and What's I love it that again. Uh, Lucifer on this the sofa. On the sofa, yeah. I mean, I, is that a lockdown reference? <laughs> you know, was he badly know. behaved in the house? But I love that kind of thing. There are other uh, there are other bands that are kind of that you know that get to that stage and they're just kind of putting out more or less the same record over and over again. And other bands like Spoon and Lowe's, another favourite of mine, who are just putting out the best records of their career. I agree They're, with Lowe. I almost picked Lowe for a Lowe song for this because because mm. it, it's because this feels like it's kind of quite in your face and it's kind of doing something, um, you know, different. And but the Spoon, so this song is the first record on the new re- new album, the first song on the new album, and it's uh, a cover of the Smog song. Right. Okay. Uh, I didn't hell. know that. Yeah. I, and and to be honest, I'm going to give you my tuppence worth on Spoon in the. I've always been aware of them. I've always yeah. quite liked them, and I know very little about them. And mm. they've always played. I've, as you mentioned, Austin, Texas. I've been to South by Southwest yeah. many times. I've been just on holiday to visit friends in Austin. I love the city. They're always playing. They're always at festivals. They're always in one of the big venues. People love them, and yet you can't like or know about all the music. And they're exactly. a band that have <laughs> slightly gone over my head a little yeah. bit. I listened to this, uh, obviously, on your recommendation, just to make sure I knew what it sounded like, having not dipped into this record. I loved it. Yeah. It's it's a, basically a three-quarter. Yeah. And uh, and it's got real momentum. It builds and builds and builds. Yeah. Um, so this, this is, weirdly, I couldn't believe that they were like, it's a brand new record. They thought, well, we'll do a cover version of a Smog song. And this this is from a Smog album from, like, I don't know, 20 years ago? Knock, mm-hmm. knock. Uh, I mean, it's one of the best, bit smog is, the, you know, Bill Callahan. Yeah. You know. He's Same out song. doing it again. He's playing yeah, yeah. quite soon, yeah. And um, and this was one of probably my favourite song of Smogs. And so then I put this on and they started playing it. I was like, I recognise that riff because it's a very distinctive riff, you know, they've got this thing going on. But it's a it's just a really simple kind of bluesy, like you say, a three chord thing. But they build it and build it and build it in a way that Smog doesn't because it's one man and he's just yeah. kind of doing this thing. Uh, and they just made it their own. It's kind of like, it's a really distinctive original, but they've somehow made it new. Mm-hmm. And they stick that as your first song on your album. You're like making a statement saying, yeah. we don't care, we're doing this cover. I, th- I think because they're, they may be more critically acclaimed in the States, but I don't think they're, they're, they're not a hype band. They're not a zeitgeist band, no. Spoon. They just sort of exist. Yeah. And I think the pressure's off, so they just do what they want. Yeah. Why did it go well with this particular whiskey? I then? don't know, because I think, like... Because they were putting, they always put their own stamp on stuff. It's, they have got a lot of personality, I think, in the band when you see them live, and that kind of struck me with this. And this, like you know, it's kind of in your face. It's not mm-hmm. shy about what it is. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, it's kind of doing its own thing. It is a flavoursome piece of music, if if I if I'm allowed to yeah, say yeah. that. Um, <laughs> it's, like to make that cheesy pun. Yeah, I know, <laughs> but it is. It, it it has it has depth. Yeah. You know, it's um, initially you're like. Oh, this sounds quite traditional. And then it, it sort of builds and builds. I can see that with this whiskey. Although right at the beginning on the nose for this, I was like, right, this is complex. <clears throat> this is flavorsome. Yeah, yeah. This is full of, you know, attitude. Yeah. Uh, but this is a, 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 a song with attitude as well. Um, journalism, we've established you did that for a good few years. I mean, mm. best part of a decade maybe, or like a lot of- The music good... journalism, yeah, at least a decade. I'm st- I still do bits and bobs of um, literary journalism. I still do some book reviews and things like that, just keep my hand in. But you're an esteemed crime writer. <laughs> uh, you're now about, was it, you're about to put out book number 14? Yes, it? yes indeed. Uh, which is no mean feat. I mean, the first one, when did the first one come out? 2006? Yes. Tombstoning? Oh, yeah, Tombstoning. 
Um, so within uh, 16 years, you've put out, well, the, the next one comes out in, in September. Yeah. 14 books in 16 years. I mean, that is good going. I'm I mean, s- I'm slacking. I'm gonna, I need to get up to a book a year. I'm gonna have to, well, I've got two coming out. Is ranking year. a book a year? He's not far off a book well, every two years. Well, maybe. he definitely does a bit. Well, he, he, he's now big enough to take a year off every now and then. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, to recharge his batteries, which I understand. But yeah, it's like, so it's, you know, it's, it's, go- it's going well. I can't complain. Tell me, what, why crime writing? Because, I, I mean, the, there's, Scotland is now famous for yeah, its yeah. crime writing and has been for many years. What, what drew you to it? Well, nothing. I didn't realise I was a crime writer until someone else said I was, uh, round about book three or something like that. Um, I didn't, I think that's quite common for quite a lot of writers. I didn't really understand what um, different genres of, of fiction were, to be honest. I, I was like, much like the music we talked about earlier, I could have read everything. I was reading science fiction and fantasy and mainstream stuff and my dad used to be an English teacher so there was lots of literary fiction around the house and poetry. Uh, and plays, you know, he's big into theatre, uh, and I read crime fiction as well, and I just kind of thought it was all part of a thing. I didn't really understand that, I mean, it's very naive looking back on it, that I wouldn't be, like, sort of pigeonholed into one thing or another. I mean, the first book had dead bodies in it, so it's probably going to be a crime yeah. novel. Yeah, you know, I always loved crime fiction. You know, there are um, uh, a whole bunch of writers, like all the one from Scotland is obviously a touchstone is William McIlvanny that everyone yeah. talks about. You know, you totally changed the face of... Scottish crime fiction, but I was more interested in kind of the classic American noir canon of like James M. Cain and Dashiell Hammett and Chandler and stuff like that. I used to love those guys, Jim Thompson. But I've always been really interested in of those books, the kind of ones that are more what I would call more noir than crime, in that they're about the criminals or the victims or the repercussions. Um, I've never written a police detective in a book. Uh, and you know, partly because there are plenty of people who are doing that yes, you know, rather right. well. Yeah. Uh, and so, I, and, and partly because I couldn't be bothered doing the research about <laughs> trying to find out <laughs> how police actually how police uh, officers work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, fair All enough. That forensic shit. And yeah, yeah. Whatever. Leave that to someone else. But I, 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 um, I kind of always written about basically ordinary people thrown into extraordinary circumstances, and that invariably involves some kind of crime. I think it's weird that the crime fiction genre is so big now. Like almost every. Almost every literary novel now is actually a crime novel mm-hmm. because that's the kind of thing. Because all fiction thrives on conflict and tension, you know, no matter what it is, and that's just more to the fore in crime fiction. So it's kind of it's hard to know where you even put the put the boundary if there is one. So I think I'm kind of I'm on that I'm in that grey area and that sort of hinterland. And, and without giving all your tricks away, <laughs> I mean. When planning a, a, a new novel, do you have do you have a sort of blackboard or a whiteboard or whatever with this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, and he, this is the main plot, this is the subplot, this is the secondary subplot, and then you combine them all, or do you just sort of freestyle it and see what happens? I'm somewhere in the middle. I do. I always used to plan the start quite meticulously and the end, and then leave the middle kind of vague so that I wasn't quite sure how I was going to get from one to the other. Um, I do have a sort of corkboard now with index cards on them for these. The most recent um, three books have been about the scales. The scales, yeah. So it's three different points of view, three different main characters, and lots of different plot lines happening. So they're colour coded and numbered as well for the plots and the characters. And I suppose you have to remember what you've written about these characters for previous the, books. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you know what? Because I mean, I know that in TV, and you know, they have a bible. So it's called a bible. So it's basically what every character's done in the past. 
I really wish I'd fucking had the, yeah, had the, yeah, yeah. Had the foresight to do that because now I'm thinking, shit, they done that in book one. Who's what's her brother's name? And, and you don't want to have to go back and wait. You have to go back and read your own. Book. I spend a lot of time flicking through the PDF, searching for things of the first book. The first book going, what happened there? Yeah, it's a bit of a nightmare. Yeah, all that backstory. But I, I, I having said that about the corkboard and the index cards, I still leave it quite vague. I sort of plan it by like by almost by act. The first act, second act, things that need to happen, mm-hmm. and but it always I have these plan. I print it out. It's basically a list of scenes, but that kind of always gets scribbled over and changed. And I've got like exclamation marks saying this is fucking rubbish and right, move okay. this here or they wouldn't do that or that needs to something needs to go in here and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of it's it's a very movable plan. I something for because I I have aspirations to start writing uh, fiction, having written a couple of books on music, and um. I just always wonder, have you ever sort of like planned the beginning, planned the end, and then as you're writing the middle, as it were, you go, actually that ends wrong and completely change the end? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, for, I won't talk about specifics, it'd be spoilers, but the jump, I'd had that, I had a whole, had a whole thing, dramatic ending uh, planned out. I mean, it got to, I was like, the logistics of that don't make sense. Like those characters wouldn't behave in that circumstance and they logistically couldn't do those things that I had planned because I've written it differently. So you had to come up with someone else. So that's just what you have to do. You have to come up with someone else. Yeah. Well, we're talking about whiskey, and you, we've already established you've been a whiskey fan for many years. Uh, you, you have a book which is, you know, a noir thriller, if you like, but with whiskey as its kind of central character in a way. Yeah. Or certainly, you know, central theme. <clears throat> yeah. Smokeheads. Yes. Yeah, so that was my third novel. It came out in 2011 now. So it's basically the elevator pitches. Uh, it's whiskey galore meets deliverance. Yeah, it's, it's not actually that. It's more like sideways, like the wine movie, but with whiskey meets deliverance. Because it's about four guys who go to Isla, um, one of who is a kind of amateur whiskey nut who wants to um, open up a new distillery there, and um, things go badly wrong. Let's put it yes. that way. <laughs> I went to I went to the launch of that, and I st- and I and there was uh, Smokehead's glasses were given. Yeah. I still I still have it, and uh, one, one yeah. of the few glasses I haven't dropped or smashed. <laughs> I've got one left as well. Yeah, because Smokehead Whiskey, um, which comes from Isla, um, they sponsored it and it was mm-hmm. great. So it was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, so that I didn't been... just name the book Smokehead so they would sponsor it. Yeah, no, but that, that must have been a, a really good thing to be able to combine. Uh, and you've also combined music and, and noir with the yeah. Ossians. And, and, you know, it must have been quite nice to put one of your loves of life, Whiskey, into... A book. Yeah, I was just really interested in that because I was having a juxtaposition because the main character is kind of a whiskey snob, um, a little bit, uh, in the in the similar way the sideways the main character is a kind of wine snob, and I, I wanted to play a little bit with that whole idea, you know whether you know because people can get very pretentious about eating and drinking sometimes, but actually the good stuff is still the good stuff. So how do you come to it? And how what is your approach to that thing? And so there's a couple of characters who just approach the drinking of whiskey very differently. And also I was kind of having a go a little bit at the sort of collecting culture, like you know you get the sort of white label that fell off the back of a lorry somewhere mm-hmm. that's like, you know worth thousands of pounds and that sort of stuff. But is it really any good to drink, yeah. or is it any better than so debunking the myth of well, like, the emperor's new clothes? Well, I just think it's thing. really interesting. Just because something's rare doesn't mean it's good and that sort of thing. I just. I just want. I was so fascinated by that idea of the whole whiskey culture. Mm. And if you go to Isla, if anyone's ever been to Isla, it's an incredible place, you know. But it is absolutely a whiskey island, you know. There's like, well, at the time it was maybe seven. I can't remember. There's more than that distilleries now. 
I mean, there's only 3,000 people there, so they pretty much all are involved in tourism or whiskey. That's yeah. the two things that they do. And they did, did you do your research? Oh, I, I went for a, a, good, a good research trip, yes. <laughs> Without from, any dead bodies? Yeah, or, yeah starting yeah. from one. Yeah, but well, a part of it is you have to work out, you know, uh, part of, you go and taste the whiskeys and look at the, the tours and all that stuff, but also like, well, where can I, where can I put a dead body that where no one's going to find it for ah. X number of hours and where can I get no phone signal? That's quite helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, out in the ocean. So if anyone was te- read your book and wanted to test you, well, he was right. He I was think right. you'll find. I don't think I would have found the body in there for a couple of days. Can they roll a barrel with a dead body in it that far? Well, yeah. I didn't quite try that. Yeah. Oh, uh, fascinating. I mean, that's an hour great part of writing a book I would imagine is once you've got the initial concept is putting the research in uh, I've just opened this up with a little bit of water as well and I think it, it works brilliantly because it is so flavoursome with a bit of water it sort of opens it into even more flavours great stuff mm. it is a podcast we could be here for <laughs> two or three hours so let's move on to dram number four tune okay. number four uh, the current book is The Great Silence. The new one that's coming out September is Black Hearts. Yes. Um, don't want to give too much away, but um, again, noirish. I mean, that's your thing. Have you got, not that you fall into a kind of routine, but do you have certain rituals that you go through when writing a new book? Well, I can't, I'm more, because these the last three books have been part of a, a trilogy, which is now a quadrilogy, I guess, because I've, yeah. I've written a fourth one. But they're kind of they, my approach to them has been slightly different in terms of writing because they were definitely um, a deliberate attempt to try and expand my writing skills and extend my interest. Because before that, I'd written ten standalone books which were kind of um, fairly linear and one usually one character's kind of central. You're in their heads, um, but these books are kind of deliberately much more expansive, looking at much more th- um, complicated ideas from different points of view. Because uh, the basic setup is it's three generations of women who have to take over the running of a funeral director's and a private investigator's when the patriarch of the family dies. So there's a grandmother, you know, a mother and a daughter. Uh, and so um, the book four that's coming out now is like, you know, I can't really talk about it because it's all yeah, yeah. fourth in a series because it's like there's so many spoilers from the first. Yeah, first yeah, and people that, are, that, yeah. that have got this far, they don't yeah. want to, they, they're, they're champing at the bit to get but into it. it but yeah. it's interesting because I really was resistant to the idea of writing a series for a long time and I don't really know why. Uh, is it a useful thing? Is it kind of right, you know, there's more to tell in this story? I, it, it's, it means you can go deeper uh, with the characters and you've got much more. Uh, what I've found is it's been really interesting is that, you know, the response to these books, the Skelf's books, because uh, they is that, from readers, is that it's absolutely about the characters. They love these three women in a way that they, I don't think they still, they don't think they had that emotional attachment to, you know, in previous these standalone books, yeah. previous characters, standalone books. You know, and, and I was thinking about it, and it's like, no one really says, oh, I love that plot. Oh, I fell in love with that plot. No one love, falls in love with the plot. You yeah. fall in love with the character, right? That's mm. what gets people reading. And so now that I've got these three women established in three, now four books, I'm writing the fifth one. It's like, I enjoy spending time with them. So I'm just going to keep writing them until I don't. Until until I think that I've not got anything else to say about their outlooks on life and, you know, challenges that they're facing. So I'm just, I I love it. It's actually the most fun I've had. Right. Writing. That's all at the moment. I'm just, I'm so, I wrote like The Great Silence. I wrote it in lockdown. I started it about a month after I had a stroke. Uh, and I wrote it in like about four months, and I just it was the best time because I could get away from the hideous 
lockdown pandemic stroke recovery mm-hmm. world and just put myself in a fictional world and just like deal with these three women and their problems so I, I found that kind of like therapy in a way it's beautiful well without digging too deep and, and I don't want to ask you too much about it you just mentioned it you had a stroke yes. I mean you're, you're fully firing on all cylinders and you're back to health but yeah. do you know what happened there I mean, was it just completely random? Have you been able to trace what, why it happened? Yeah, it, I, they have, yes. So I had, to, it turned out, I was basically, I was walking up Arthur's seat and I started to feel dizzy and then I vomited everywhere and it turned out I was having a stroke. I thought it was a migraine or something at the time, I didn't really know. Um, and it turns out they think, because I don't have any of the sort of, you know, risk factors for a stroke, um, like diabetes and, you know, health, health is fine generally. Um, but I think they th- it's probably that I had a hole in the heart which is a thing that is very common. Apparently, one in five people have it, um, and most people don't know they ever have it. So they did a test, and a do it means that you've got a flappy bit in the middle of your heart. Mm. I'm doing the action now for people listening. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and what they think is that the a blood clot from my body, if it, normally if it comes into your heart, it goes out and into your lungs, which absorbs clots. This is all so stuff every, that you've learned. Every day is a learning day, right? Yeah. But if it goes through the hole uh, into the other part of your heart, it then goes straight to your brain. So that's okay. how I had a stroke. So I had a blood clot in the in the cerebellum at the back in the first bit of my. Well, it seems like uh, I mean, you know, you hear stroke, you hear heart attack, anything like this, and and you immediately think of you know fatalities or serious health problems. But it's it's been a sort of you know lucky escape. In you try to cheer me up, Vic. I'm, tr- I'm trying to <laughs> trying my best to deal with a dark subject. <laughs> Death. Yeah. No, but I mean, so I had an operation to close up the hole of my heart, and I'm on you know blood thinners and stuff like that. So I mean, I'd, you know. Life expectancy is reduced for stroke victims, but at the same time, I feel as healthy as I've ever been. Yeah. Partly because I've been drinking lots of great whiskey. <laughs> well, this is it. I mean, you know, let's let's move on, shall yes, we? Okay. But I'm, I'm, I'm delighted because obviously, I, you know, I've known you for many years and then and sort of saw you relatively soon afterwards. I don't know, maybe six yeah. months afterwards or whatever, a few months, and you you sort of dropped the news, and I was kind of taken aback. And then invited you on the podcast, and you were like, "No, no, no, I'm I'm drinking whiskey, I'm listening to music, you yeah, know." That's fine. So that's all good, right? Last drum okay. is called Spice Wreck. Yes. Uh, and sh- shall I just say, Terra Firma? In case I didn't, I can't remember if I did read out the number. It's forty-four point one five four. So four four one five four for Terra Firma, the last drum. This is one three eight one two. So one three eight twelve, and it's called Spice Wreck. It's a First fill, uh, third char barrel, number three char barrel, age six years. Um, it's 57.1% alcohol volume. And I mentioned right at the top of the podcast, it's from Taiwan. Yes. I've never had whiskey from Taiwan. I don't think I have either. Um, I'm going to read a couple of the lines of the tasting notes. The cask had the upper hand here initially. We thought it opened with notes of smoked pencil shavings, graphite oil, and natural tar. Then herbal scented embrocations, bacon frazzles, and extra salty pork scratchings. Wee leathery and camphory touches emerged over time. And it goes on. Uh, embrocations is a word that I don't think I've ever said out loud before. So uh, <laughs> apart from anything else, that's a first for me. Uh, so Taiwan, Taiwanese whiskey. Yeah. Um, I'll take a sniff of this. Quite, quite alcoholy on the nose. Yeah, yeah. But you can you can smell yeah uh, what did they say that you know the, the the cask had the upper hand you can yeah you can you can taste or smell the the, yeah. the, the kind of woodiness right nice nose actually maybe my favorite so far oh 
really nice. Wow. Do you know, it's interesting. I was like, um, you know, I'm a huge fan of peaty whiskies, and like none yeah. of the four that we've had are peaty. That's not peaty, but it's... Oh, it's got a hint of peaty. It's, it's got a hint of... Yeah. Of there's, but there's something else about it. Like, I think of the all these four, this is the one I would get a bottle of. There you go. Taiwanese whiskey. <laughs> exactly, it's great. Made in Taiwan. Smoked which, cheese. You know, I'm smelling smoke. You know that cheap smoked processed cheese? Right, yeah. I'm getting that. And bananas. Yeah. Like fried. It has. It definitely has a smokiness to it. It may not yeah, be. Yeah. It's, it is the lightly peated profile. Right, okay, yeah, so um, it, it, it has got some peat to it. Like Very it. tasty. Now, I would never have... I know nothing about the Taiwanese distillery it comes from, uh, which I'm definitely going to invest uh, investigate after this podcast. It's definitely spicy, isn't it? Yeah. It's chilly. Ooh. Any more of the tasting notes about that? Hot paprika, anchovy paste, olive tapenade, <laughs> wormwood, <laughs> smoked peppercorns. There yeah. you go, yeah. Yeah, this is good. So you, you're definitely this, you know, the, the PT spot. This is my know, end, this is my end yeah, of, the, yeah. of the whiskey flavouring, yeah, definitely. And you paired this up with mm. Biffy Clyro. Biffy Clyro. My Mon, old pals. Mon the Biff. Mon the Biff. Yes, Mon the I Biffy, picked the yeah. song Living is a Problem Because Everything Dies, partly because I love that title. Yeah. And I'm going to use it for a short story or something at some point yeah. in my life. Uh, I love Biffy Clyro so much. I went to see them at the Big Top uh, the weekend there in uh, Ingolston. It was phenomenal yeah they're just unbelievable for like a band that's like what nine albums in or something now oh yeah at least yeah uh, maybe more they're just absolutely knocking it out of the park and it's so good like we both saw them I guess even before the first record was out well maybe, they or? formed about 95 I've been mm -hmm. on the radio since 99 I started playing their stuff around about then yeah. they're the the kids who pop today will rock, rock tomorrow. tomorrow. That was the Stokeology EP or whatever. Yeah, and, and then they got a little deal. and You know, I played them in demo form and all the way through. And I've never known a band, whether you listeners, whether you viewers, whether you like them or not, that band have worked their asses off Absolutely. all the way through. Yeah. They've toured, they've played to two men and a dog, then ten men and a dog, <laughs> then a hundred men yeah. and two dogs, and then then it's 300, then it's 500. They just went round and round and round. They kept writing songs, releasing records. And yeah. the tune that you've chosen, Living is a Problem Because Everything Dies, is from their fourth album, Puzzle, yes. in 2007, which alone is 15 years ago. That was their kind of breakthrough album. Well, really. that's what, 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 partly why I chose this song, because this is a really ballsy whiskey, I thought. Yeah. They're, they're a ballsy band who have absolutely been successful on their own terms. Like, they have not compromised one jot. I first saw them around about the same time. So 1999 or 2000, I saw them play the Liquid Rooms to about 50 people. Yeah. And I, they were one of the best bands, live bands, I'd ever seen in my life. They were so tight then. They were already then. The first album wasn't out, I don't think, or it was just coming out. They had like a bunch of singles in that EP. But they were so good. And I was like, just this is unbelievably good stuff. And But what was interesting about their career was exactly like they worked their fucking asses off. And those first few records were on indie label. And I think they're absolutely brilliant records, right? Yeah, me too. And uh, there's, a, there's Beggar's Banquet. And they put out, Beggar's put out a, a compilation of the singles from those albums, mm -hmm. which is unbelievable. It's like hit after hit after hit. But they weren't actual hits. They're they just, should have been they're hits. They're just total yeah. bangers. Like they're, yeah. at, they're all brilliant. Uh, but I'll tell you what, I went to see them at the weekend and they didn't play a single song from those first few records. Because their back catalogue is so fucking good now. Yeah, yeah. It's like they haven't even don't even need to go. Also, there. they must have played those early songs so many times they probably <laughs> never want to hear them again. Yeah. yeah. What was interesting about this record puzzle was, like you say, this is the first time they went to a major label. It's like an offshoot of Warner's, um, and you know they could have 
they could have mellowed out. They could have, you know, shaved off the, the rough edges. But this, oh, this is the opening track of the album. And it's unbelievable. It's hilarious. It's, have you, you must have seen them play live. Yeah. The they, the so they have this kind of... <laughs> and then the stabs go bam, bam, with strings. And I still, to this day, don't quite know. There, well, there must be someone's phone number or as something. As a drummer, I've worked it out, but it's hard. It's really hard. It's deliberately hard. It's deliberately obscure. And it was. it's like basically two minutes of... Yeah. It's like, what are you doing? It's like, Warners must have shat themselves when they heard this. They must have uh, but been... then it goes into this and kind of amazing pop song. strings yeah. and like choirs and yeah. this unbelievable chorus, which is exactly what they've always done. They always had like weird time signatures, strange offbeat stuff, and then bang, killer choruses. Like, I mean, three or four songs they played at the weekend were like literally whoa, 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 whoa. And like the whole tent was going crazy for singing along to stuff. I mean, yeah. that's always been their remit is massive pop tunes and weirdness yeah. combined, often in the same song. I, the, you, you mentioned prog rock earlier on. Um, I haven't seen the Biffy Boys because they're now massive. They used to come and play on my show all the time. They don't need me any longer uh, and I don't blame them. Um, but I haven't seen them for ages, but one of the things we always used to talk about, obviously, is music. They're massive fans and it would be proggy, off-kilter kind of stuff. Because yeah. I always loved the fact that they did that kind of stuff right next to a Lighters in the Air anthem. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a, a phenomenal band. This is a particularly good tune. I mean, they, they, they go from strength to strength. Now they have number one albums, the headline, headline <laughs> downloads and Sonosphere and Reading Festival. I don't think they've quite got to Glastonbury headliners yet, but no. if they keep going, I wouldn't be surprised in five years' time or something. But you're absolutely right that no one deserves it more than these guys. Yeah. They're just, they're just the, I, I, you know, I've interviewed them several times as well. Could be just, nicer. Yeah. And they're just the nicest people on the yeah. planet, and yet they're making this music. I mean, we're lucky to be around at the same time as these guys. Yeah. They're making music that I think is incredible. I mean, and still, they made their record in lockdown. You know, there's an Amazon documentary about the new record they made where they just went to farm and built a studio yeah. like, like down the road from their old place in Ayrshire. I just made a record like just three of them yeah. and, it's, and it's a phenomenal record it's like yeah. it's great they can just fuck around like that I love it yeah yeah no it's it's a, a great choice and uh, I think I think there are maybe some people who are a bit sniffy about the pop tunes uh, that you know the X, one of the X Factor contestants <laughs> covered them for yeah. example and I think that probably earned them you know an, an extra house each but <laughs> um, I think some people are a bit sniffy about that but they've never shied away from the big choruses and then the quirky, odd, proggy bits. Also, what's very annoying about them, having just seen them live, is that they are all in their 40s now. They're still totally shredded. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tops off every gig. It's quite annoying. I know, yeah. <laughs> Mind you, I, I remember Lemmy from Motorhead talking about why he dyed his hair and his moustache and so on. No one wants to see someone with grey hair in a rock band. And I suppose, you know, if Biffy took their tops off and there were kind of bellies hanging over... Aye. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't look good. Um, <laughs> just... You know, as we finish this drama, we finish the podcast, a little bit more about music because you're a crime writer. Yeah. Um, we've got to mention, like when we met, I played in a band called Miracle Head with James Yorkson, previous guest on yeah. the podcast. You played in a band called Cheese Grater. Cheese Core, you know the score. <laughs> Cheese Core, you know the score. Uh, Cheese Grater, though. I, 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 you know, touches of Mud Honey and Dinosaur Jr. and that yeah, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. It was grungy, punky, rocky, kind of good fun music. Yeah, is this you leading up to me talking about how I met Kurt Cobain, yeah? <laughs> I, I wasn't going to mention it, but seeing as you've dropped no, that no, clanger... No, 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 no. But, yeah, no that, well, you've mentioned it. She's greater on the scene at the same time yes. as Miracle Head and various <laughs> other bands, and we played on some three-band bills and watched yeah, each yeah. other from afar and all that sort of stuff. Um, but there was that famous... 
Um, Nirvana played a couple of times in Edinburgh and the road crew were from Edinburgh. And um, they, after the second time they played at the Cult Studios, there was a rumour going around. <laughs> Kurt Cobain and Dave Grohl were going to play the Southern Bar. Yeah. And uh, I, I heard that rumour and I was a massive fan. Obviously, I was at the gig and I went, that's not happening. We went somewhere else. <laughs> you went to tell us. Well, I, I, the Southern was my local pub. Like, I lived around the corner in a flat in Sheens. It's literally two minutes away. And my, my flatmate worked behind the bar in the Southern. So I was in there every night of the week anyway. Uh, and the reason that they were that this whole thing came about with the Southern was that our other flatmate, Murdo, who was in the Joyriders, who were a great indie band at the time, um, his brother Alex was Nirvana's tour manager. Mm-hmm. So Murdo is a bit older than us, and he'd been in the Cataran, who had supported Nirvana. Amazing band, you know, yeah, great yeah. Band. Uh, <clears throat> and so, and, and Alex was like the tour manager for like Soundgarden and Mudhoney and Nirvana, when they were, no one knew who they were, and they were just like looking for gigs anywhere. Um, and so they had a night off and uh, it was meant to be for charity. I don't know what was going on, but um, there was some like, well, let's go and play an acoustic show. So the idea was going to be at the Southern and the Joyriders played a set, a support set. And then it looked very like Nirvana hadn't turned up. And then it looked very much like they weren't going to turn up. And then Murdo came over to me and said, do you cheat? There's three, like, do you cheese grater guys want to go up and do a set? I was like, fucking no. <laughs> Number one, people are expecting Nirvana. <laughs> Hi, so, we're not Nirvana. Boo, <laughs> get off. And number two, there's only three of us like out of the five band members, and we've never played an acoustic guitar in our lives. So no. Um, but then it was like, uh, it was okay. And then so uh, Murdo eventually got up and said, and because the place was packed, because they'd been handing out flyers at the um, Carlton Studios gig mm. the night before, uh, saying a mysterious band called Teen Spirit were going to play at this other. So it was absolutely rammed. And then Murdo got up and said, no, Nirvana hadn't shown up, sorry, something's happened. So, so, then, so 90% out. of people left, and then two minutes later, Kurt and Dave turned up, and, uh, and they played like an eight-song set. Now, the amount of people that have said to me they were there, and I know they were lying, uh, because there are admittedly not very many photos, but there are a couple of photos of that happening, and you're in one of them. It's, yeah. it's you sort of gurning into the camera, or being, I mean, you know, and Kurt Cobain and Dave Grohl, uh, you know, a, a, a metre or so behind you. Yeah, uh, yeah a, a little bit of rock history there. I, it was so, I mean, I met Kurt, and he, he I mean, he was kind of, he was, he was, he was a weird guy. Guy, wasn't he? Yeah. And by all, but he, he said to me, do you have any Benelin? And I went, no. So I almost had a sore throat. Right. And then he walked on. Uh, Dave Grohl bought us all a pint. Nice guy. Yeah. But, he, but it was obviously at that time of the band where they were just getting famous. I think, they, I mean, Teen Spirit. Teen Spirit had come out, never mind come out. Yeah. 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 And uh, and he was basically at the bar and he opened his wallet and it was just thick with fucking 20 pound notes. Yeah. And he just didn't know. He was like, that was his, that was his like per diem or whatever. He's like, does anyone want a drink? And we're like, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. So it's hard to drink with Dave Grohl. Nice times. Yeah, good. Well, <laughs> Cheese Grater, uh, Little Hope Town Giants. Oh, yeah. uh, loved that band that you were in. Uh, mm. You you released music on Fence Records as Northern Alliance. You were yeah. part of the, the Fence Collective. And you're doing your own solo stuff now yeah. as well. We should give that a mention. Crow Hill being the last record, the most recent one Indeed. from 2021. Yeah. So songwriting still part of your life? Yeah, I really enjoy that. I kind of I kind of dip in and out of it because the books are kind of the main yeah, priority massively now. Massively consume time. But actually, it, that was I loved doing Crow Hill a record. Um, it was a really I just basically secreted myself away in the loft with a laptop and a bunch of stuff and like drums and guitars because effectively that's where I write, but also my drum kit's there and guitars and apps are sitting around, you know, in case I get bored. Yeah. Uh, and just I kind of had a bunch of songs and that was a kind of record about um, the experience of having a stroke and the aftermath of it. 
But I just love that kind of. I, I'll tell you what the difference is. If I'm writing a book, like I check social media about once every hour. Uh, if I'm making, if I'm making a song. Yeah, you don't like it. Yeah. I, I go in at nine o'clock in the morning, and suddenly it's like dinner time, like eight in the evening, and I'm like. Oh great! I just, I just, I'm, it's so much. Joy. I make music still to this day, and I feel exactly the same way. It's, it's, it's the pure escapism. I yeah. love it. I absolutely love it. And you're just mucking about with like different synth sounds, or one day getting your guitar pedals out, or you know, looping stuff and whatever. It's just the time flies, and it's just the, the simple. Even if you don't even put it out, yeah. Uh, the simple joy of making stuff like that is just. I mean. You get it. I it's totally like, get yeah. it. I totally get it. I'm, I'm working on new music with my band at the moment, and I'm sure it'll see the light of day at some point, but it's the process of doing it that is... I, it's maybe taken me this to this age in life to realise that it's the doing it rather than the yeah. getting kudos from it that's the, the important thing. But also, we have to mention before the podcast is over, because you are this esteemed crime writer with a 14th book about to come out, you're also part of a band, the fun-loving crime writers. Yes. For I, people who <laughs> may not know what I'm talking about, explain that, because that's so, good fun. So, that is a band of crime writers. I'm the drummer, uh, and it's me and Val McDermott and Mark Billingham and Chris Brookmeyer and Stuart Neville and Luca Vesti. Uh, Val and Mark and Chris and Stuart all do singing. Stuart's an incredible guitarist, uh, unbelievable guitarist. Uh, Luca plays bass, Chris plays guitar, and Mark plays guitar as well. It's... Um, and so it came about about five years ago. We were at a Bouchercon, which is a kind of um, crime writing uh, convention, in, yeah, convention in New Orleans. And they had an open mic night. Uh, and there was a house band, which was terrible. It must be the only three musicians in New Orleans, in New Orleans, you, can't Orleans play. you can't play. So they went for a break and we sort of bum-rushed the show. Um, me, Mark and Stuart. And we played a couple of songs with a, a local drummer, this guy, who's also a crime writer, Bill Lofham. So I actually played guitar that night. Uh, and we played a couple of songs, Johnny Cash and The Proclaimers and something else. And um, and it went really well. And like, folk were loving it and dancing. And we came off stage and I remember vividly saying to Mark and Stuart, like, we could do this back home. We could just form a band. I'll play the drums because drummers are hard to come by. Guitarists, ten a penny. But, um, and we came True. back and I mentioned it to um, Roland Gulliver, who runs the Edinburgh Book, who ran the Edinburgh Book Festival in those, t- in those days. And he just kind of booked us. We didn't really have a band, so we then had to. It's like a field of dreams scenario. We had to then like put the band together. So we enlisted. And at the same time, I'd also done music stuff with Val at Bloody Scotland has an open mic night, and Mark had done stuff with Luca, and I'd done stuff with Chris Brookmeyer. So we all kind of knew there was musical people around us, which I think is quite common. And so we kind of all coalesced into a thing. Uh, and our first gig at Edinburgh Book Festival that year was just. I think a lot of people turned up expecting us to be terrible. Uh, for a no, I've, I've seen you. I've seen you, and um, <laughs> it's it's you know it's cover versions and so yeah. on and so on. But it's it's good fun, and yeah, you can play. Well, you have this 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 history of music behind you, uh, and and lovely people. I don't know them all. I know Val a little bit yeah. now because she was a guest on mm. Maltz and Music, and and Chris Brookmeyer is a lovely fellow as well. I always have a chat with him if I see him. Uh, great fun. Well, good luck with the new book, <laughs> Black Hearts. Um, Thank you for spending a bit of time with me on Malts and Music. It's lovely to be here in Scotch Malt Whiskey oh, Society. Definitely. When the cameras and the recording gear goes off, we're definitely not going to have another dram, are we? Sure. Uh, <laughs> good to see you, Doug. <laughs> and uh, yeah, a ballsy Taiwanese uh, dram to finish yeah. off with a bit of Biffy Clyro as the soundtrack. Excellent. Good way to end it. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.